0: I'm Anthony Walsh, and this is the Roadman Cycling Podcast, a show where we empower you with the tools to optimize your health, your happiness, and your longevity. Today, we have an amazing guest, Mr. Ben Comer. He is a renowned health and fitness expert, best selling author, and host of the popular podcast Ben Comer Radio. His latest book, How to Live an Awesome Life The 11 Step Formula to Fulfillment and Success, has been a source of inspiration for many readers. In today's episode, we'll be diving deep into some of those thought provoking topics, such as the power of uncomfortable conversations, imposter syndrome, and the impact of the environment on our well-being, and how to take action on knowledge we consume. I think this is a problem for so many people. Ben will be sharing some of his personal experiences, his insights and his strategies that will help you live a more fulfilled and successful life. Here's a little taste of what awaits you today.
1: I mean, data suggests that we're on our mobile phone three to four hours a day. So if the things that are popping up on it and notifying us they're not positive, they're not conductive to our goals. are then detracting our attention away from what's important. An easy way to maybe get people to draw themselves to how energy formulates itself is when you walk into a bar, there's a group of six people, you don't know them, and you warm to one or two people, let's just say one person. What, why? There's like an energy there and it's kind of like common values, common ground, their perspective, their outlook, their upbringing think you have to relish in the result to be motivated to continue to do the thing so for example if you started a new job and you started to earn an extra thousand pounds a month you'd be more motivated to continue doing that job well because you're like <laughs> i'm getting paid more money so it's the same with nutrition like if you started to track a bit of your nutrition and you're like hang on a second i'm losing weight faster i'm feeling better i'm going to keep doing this tracking thing so as long as we can connect the input with the output We continue to be motivated with our adjustment of behavior.
0: Ben, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
1: Hey, awesome to be here. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's great to have you. I'm a self-proclaimed self-help book junkie. It's basically the only genre I read. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a bad rap though in recent years, isn't it? I feel kind of dirty saying that, that I only read self-help books. Why has it got this bad rap?
1: I don't know it feels almost like self-indulgent you know I think I don't know especially as a Brit it's like f- helping yourself is a weird thing and bettering yourself is a weird thing and also it's kind of I suppose it's the tall poppy syndrome that as soon as you sort of elevate yourself everyone's trying to like pull you down so you don't disclose it because you don't want to be the the person that's now thinking above other people maybe I, I don't know but I'm I'm the same I've read a good 60 70 80 personal
0: development books. I I remember hiding it at the very start. I was I was probably in school still. Yeah, I would have been like 15? And my cousin who was an Irish dancer and lived with me at the time, she bought me the hypnotist. I remember, he's on Channel Four for a while, Paul McKenna, mm. and he had a book called Instant Self Confidence. And I was a soccer player at the time, and I thought right. This is cool, like instant self confidence. Like, give me a bit of this. And I came with a CD and everything. But I used to like secretly listen to that CD because it is shame. I didn't want everyone (laughs) to be like, look at this Gimp with his instant self confidence.
1: Well, I think that's the thing in your network, especially friends, you'd get mocked. Like, you know, everyone would be having a jibe. So you'd just be, I'll hide it. But then you sort of start to become a bit wiser and people are like, oh, can I just pick your brains on this kind of stuff? And then it kind of becomes cool because outside looking in, people are like, this guy's getting results and I fancy a bit of that.
0: Yeah, people also maybe come to that realization that ripping others down doesn't make themselves any happier.
1: No, I think it comes with maturity, right? When you're young, it's all just part of growing up and ribbing each other, being part of a sports team, lads, lads, lads. And then, you know, you get to 24, 25 and everyone's like, "Uh, should probably think about the whole career thing, actually earning money, Getting a bit of self-respect, and then it all kind of like shifts through that maturity stage. I think
0: we have this idea in Ireland of notions. Uh, have you heard of this notions? Loosely, so a notion is basically the worst thing you can have, especially in plural. If you're here in Ireland, if you have notions, it's more than he just has a notion. He's multiple notions about himself. It's like we're, we have this conditioning as to where our station is. So our station financially, our station relationship-wise. And if you have ideas that are above that kind of societally defined station, you're tagged as having notions. And it's more common in rural parts of Ireland. Like even if somebody from rural part of Ireland is dating someone from the capital city, Dublin, it'd be like, oh, you know, your man has notions about himself. Like the local girls aren't good enough for him. But (laughs) that's kind of inbuilt in that hesitancy people have to say they're trying to better themselves. They don't want that tag of notions.
1: I think maybe I'll ask you it's why moving away is so much more common because it's almost like you know if you lived in rural Ireland you're like right I'm going to move to Dublin and you're like it's almost like a blank canvas again you can meet different people you can get a different job you can kind of create yourself and then when you go home hopefully you've then got the confidence to be like this is who I am now and sometimes it's easier to kind of just break away and that's the power of environment right I mean I've written extensively about that like one of the biggest ways that people will hold themselves back is their environment, like their parental grip on them, the grip that their friends and family have on them, the workplace environment, like all these environments are really powerful on how we behave and act.
0: I've often heard people talking about the power of environment and I've always known the power of environment. I've misdefined it for a long time, and it was actually listening to some of your material that caused me to challenge my idea of environment. I had environment as a quite tight idea that it was the people I surrounded myself with, the information I consumed. I never actually looked at it as my physical environment and the power that also has as well, like the power of having a tidy office in terms of bringing productivity, the power of going to sleep in a room that supports the type of sleep you want. I heard you doing it and that's the first time I've actually heard anyone talking about this expanded idea of environment. How important is are both sides of that but particularly that part that I missed?
1: Huge. And a big thing now is our mobile phone. You think I mean, data suggests that we're on our mobile phone three to four hours a day. So if the things that are popping up on it and notifying us, they're not positive, they're not conductive to our goals, then detracting our attention away from what's important. So I always look at it from like an audit perspective. So when you open your eyes at 6am, for example, uh, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you smell? So is your bedroom environment conductive to good sleep? When you walk downstairs and you get into your kitchen, is your kitchen conductive to healthy living. To so what's in your fridge, what's in your cupboard. Don't leave the
0: dishes, just what you're telling me till the next morning.
1: Maybe because if you walk in your kitchen and it stresses you out, you're like, ah. Oh. then probably do the dishes before you go to bed. Because again, it's a conditioning that you're susceptible to potentially. Then there's the rest of your house. Then there's like the flow and the energy in your house, the amount of light, the amount of plants, the amount of art. And then you get in your car, like you go to work, like all of these little micro stimuluses Add up to positive momentum or negative momentum. And I always say to people, where in your life does that positive momentum stop? For some people, it's in their brain. Their brain stops them from being positive, moving forward, being goal oriented. And for some people, it's part of their environment. So for a lot of people, they might go to work and hate a job. And it's like, right, well, long term, your job has to change because you're meaningfully trying to move forward with your life, but your job is getting in the way. It's ruining your momentum because you're finishing work pissed off and then you're going home and drinking or self-sabotaging or self-loathing because of that environment. So it's so important. And I suppose the more that we can create this positive, the stuff that we can't always change as much as we want to, is easier to manage and handle because so much more of our life is kind of positive and built towards
0: you know what we want. There is ancient cultures that have figured out this a lot faster than we have. Like, you look at the importance of feng shui in Chinese culture. This is like the energy force. Like, again, going back to that younger, sort of more skeptical version of all of us, I would have just said that was bullshit back in the day. I'm like, energy that flows through a room, and you're telling me the direction of my bed matters to how I sleep. But I'm increasingly finding there's power to that ancient wisdom.
1: Yeah, And it's quite unexplainable, but I think an easy way to maybe get people to draw themselves to how energy formulates itself is when you walk into a bar, there's a group of six people, you don't know them, and you warm to one or two people, let's just say one person. Why? There's like an energy there, and it's kind of like common values, common ground, their perspective, their outlook, their upbringing. And the same can be said with physical spaces. Uh, the weather as well. Weather has more energy than we give it uh, kind of credit for. Like if you look at a dull, gloomy day, like how does that change your perspective and your outlook and your feeling of the day? And I think a lot of people will call bullshit until they just actually just opened their perspective and psyche up to it and started to kind of tune into it. And um, I think that's why people, when they start to go down the rabbit hole of more being in tune with your spirit and what's happening around you, you just go down the rabbit hole even further because it's kind of fascinating and you start to tune into all these nuances in life and in yourself. And you can't help but not think, oh, what's under this layer of the onion?
0: And you know, that's a great example you gave of going into the bar and the crowd of people and being kind of magnetized or more drawn to a couple because we're in a little bit of a culture where. Everyone's like, well, show me the data, show me the peer-reviewed research on this you know, particular action. And it's like, you don't need that. Like you can observe behavior, you can have unexplainable energy, unexplainable feeling of happiness in certain situations and put yourself more in those situations. You don't need to see peer-reviewed data on stuff. Because also, data looks at the masses. 500 people went and they walked barefoot on a beach. Here's the effects of walking barefoot on a beach on 500 people. I don't give a shit about that. I only care about the effects of walking barefoot on a beach for me. Mm. Like, how does it make me feel? And I know every time I get my shoes off and I walk on the sand on the edge of the water close to my house, I come home and I just feel feel different. I feel happier. I feel more content, more at ease. you can't explain that by digging into those scientific papers that look at you know, metadata.
1: No, and I think it's important to separate the explained and unexplained. So there's loads of things like nutrition a great example. If you were to sit down and start having a debate about nutrition, you should probably say, what do we know in the data before we start this debate? And we know, for example, that like calories are king. Most people are deficient in like vitamin D, so we we form a basis, and then we go. Well, let's talk about the unexplained, and the unexplained might be the when you eat certain foods, you feel a lowering of energy instead of an increasing in energy, and you might say, well, that doesn't make sense because the food has good calories in it, etc. But For example, you might be someone that eats a high-carb diet and feels great, but I might eat a high-carb diet and I don't feel great. So regardless of how mitochondria works on the grand scheme of human human physiology, we still have to listen to the N equals one, which is us, the experience of self and our response to kind of nutrition. And I think some of these more kind of, uh, what's the word, esoteric concepts will never be fully explained. And that's why you just have to kind of trust the human journey your own instinct and how you're kind of behaving in your environment and kind of go with it because ultimately your own life is your experience it's not anyone else's
0: For the first time in years, I have really big targets that I'm super passionate about this summer. And although the warmer months are approaching, I don't want to slip into that trap I see so many riders falling into, just riding around with no focus and no aim with their friends simply because the good weather is starting to arrive. I'm still using my Watt bike almost daily to keep me sharp and on point with specific sessions all the way into my target events, Rift, Migration Gravel, and Leadville later this summer. That's why I'm really happy to be partnering with Wattbike. The Wattbike Adam it's sitting next to the desk in the recording studio, and if I have an hour between interviews, I jump on. It's removing all those friction points for me. No more 10-minute setup, unfolding legs, banging my knees off stuff, connection issues. It just works every single time. The Adam is perfect for riding Zwift because it has those crisp gear changes. Boom, boom. 1% power accuracy and max gradient capability of 25% if only my legs had a max gradient capability of 25%. Even if I'm riding those steepest climbs on Witopia, it's absolutely fine. I'm actually riding that custom gearing setup. So if I'm riding a particularly hilly route, I'll select a more climbing suitable gear ratio. It's the business. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, if you're looking to stay sharp this summer and not lose that hard-earned fitness over the winter, I couldn't recommend the Bike setup any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com now and check out their full range. How far off totally personalized dietary recommendations do you think we are at the moment? I've been playing around with Inside Tracker. I've used this where you get blood tests locally and you send it off to Inside Tracker and they'll come back with specific recommendations that are. You know, just a lot more depth and analysis than your GP is going to give you with the, you know, the normal little window. Hey, your vitamin D should be between this and this. They'll give you a nuanced understanding of, okay, here it is, and here's dietary or lifestyle changes you can make to get it to perfect. I'm wondering, like, how far are we from getting up in the morning and having an app that tells us, you know, based on how you slept, based on your current blood glucose levels, based on your you know previous activity and your proposed activity for today. Here's like your dietary plan that you need right now.
1: I don't think we're that far off. I think what we'll see is there's a point in time where trackables, or I can imagine there'll be a point in time when we'll have to have something inserted into us, like a little module that maybe sits inside one of our capillaries and is able to actually read what's happening in our blood. But I wouldn't be surprised five years from now we're able to look up in our Apple Watch or whatever insert tech app watch is able to say yeah you're quite low on vitamin d today either get out in the sun more or go and you know focus on that as part of your diet or your supplementation how specific that gets is unknown but it's going to get more specific like we're starting to understand things at unbelievable levels and it's starting to kind of rapidly increase in terms of how tech can kind of tell us things it will start off expensive, like, you know, a lot of the tech, you know, did, but, you know, we'll all be wearing these things in 12, 13 years time, it will probably be made up as part of our health insurance policy, so that we can actually, you know, get a better health care at a reduced rate, etc. And that awareness can only be a good thing, because we've got all this tech and data and research and evidence. Now, the harsh reality is the population is not by and large getting healthier if you look at it statistically we are not getting healthier so this accessibility to data isn't changing anything and at some point it has to and i am fascinated on an individual level and a societal level as to when that shift happens because you know otherwise the healthcare conundrum is only going to increase on a like a government policy kind of level
0: like i haven't seen data on this but it seems to me there's a widening of the gap you know maybe overall we're not getting healthier but top percentage of people seem like they're getting healthier. They're plugging in more to, you know, super sapiens, continuous glucose monitors, whoop wearables for tracking, sleep. They're working with amazing coaches in strength and conditioning or whatever cardio their choice. But the masses are so detached from this world that they're falling further and further behind. And that's bringing our averages, you know, way, way up because obesity, as you say, which is so closely linked to mental health problems as well because all metrics on that, depression, suicide, social isolation, they're all up through the roof at unprecedented highs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the gap
1: will only widen until we almost like drag, drag the bottom up. But there has to be at some point a kind of government level intervention where we start to reduce the cost of certain food stuff. So like fruits and vegetables, you know, that kind of stuff, like it shouldn't be expensive. It should be highly accessible, but also there's, there's big kind of conversations there like this. And this is just my opinion, but I believe that where we live in the UK, our soil quality, I feel it is either diminishing or they're doing something within the, the the network of our food, because the food over the last couple of years just doesn't seem to be tasting as well. Like I was preparing some carrots at the weekend, and I was like, they looked a bit translucent. They looked a little bit mushy. And we're not comparing organic versus non-organic. Leave that conversation aside. Like you can just look at some fruits and vegetables, and like this is this doesn't look or feel very nutritious. It's not got crunch to it. It's not got body to it. Doesn't really taste of a lot. So there's kind of a huge amount at play here. But I have hope that it will change through the ease and access of information over time. I think like it has to.
0: But it's so, so easy to consume too many calories. Like oh, you so just easy. need to pull out my fitness pal for two, three days. I always say this as well. Behind the podcast, we have a cycling coaching company. And when people come in and they're suffering with their weight, I say, like, I don't love the idea of my fitness pile as a long term solution trying to track stuff. Some people are, are good with that, but I just find it too mentally taxing and Agreed. it ends up contributing to this new phenomenon like meta stress, where you're actually stressed about the idea of putting in this input. But as a two, three day snapshot, it's absolutely amazing, but it's just so, so easy to consume, you know three and a half four and a half thousand calories a day for someone like you know if you're having snacks ice cream cookies mcdonald's type stuff it's like you slip once a day on that type stuff like you're not hitting your calorie deficit for that day zero chance unless you're fasting for a long long period and you
1: look at enjoyment of life a lot of enjoyment of life comes through food you go out for a a meal with your partner and you want to like really enjoy it eat what you want which is great we all want to do that but most main meals in a restaurant are anywhere from 1200 calories to about 1800 calories and you put a pudding on top put an alcoholic drink on top put a you know little chocolate that comes around with your you know your aperitif afterwards or whatever you do and you know you've easily sunk two and a half three thousand calories on a meal out and that's just you enjoying yourself but the reality is that does play into body composition recovery and that whole kind of conversation so i would do the same as you i'm like you have to understand what you're putting in your mouth calorie track for a while understand the impact of this stuff like if you want to go out and do whatever you want on a saturday know that sunday you might need to eat a bit leaner maybe go out for a nice walk think about kind of your activity balance and that's if you're someone that is inclined to balance both the enjoyment of life And the enjoyment of optimal body composition, which many people want to do. I want to do it. So I just have to learn the skills and the techniques to be able to monitor both sides of the equation to get the most as possible out of both sides of the equation.
0: I think you hit it there because when people have this idea of, you know, go on, live a little, and we've associated with living a little and that term with we have to eat and we have to drink. Live a little can also be, you know, take the day off and go hiking. Because, mm. you know, it's a, I've, I've sat on both sides of this fence, as I know you have. The idea that it's hard to get up and go to the gym or hard to get up and go for a bike ride and keep a, a notion of how many calories you've consumed that day. Yes, that is hard. But it's also hard to get up in the morning when your mental health's not brilliant, when you're sick, when you're depressed, when you've limited mobility. That's a fucking lot harder than mm. the motivation it takes to count a few calories and to be active during the day. And once you make that flip i think there's no going back
1: i think you have to relish in the result to be motivated to continue to do the thing so for example if you started a new job and you started to earn an extra thousand pounds a month you'd be more motivated to continue doing that job well because you're like <laughs> i'm getting paid more money so it's the same with nutrition like if you started to track a bit of your nutrition and you're like hang on a second i'm losing weight faster i'm feeling better I'm going to keep doing this tracking thing. So as long as we can connect the input with the output, we continue to be motivated with our adjustment of behavior. And all of these things like take more time, but the chances are you'll take time from other parts of your life. So you might, for example, be someone that right now watches telly for an hour and a half a night every night. And I, as a coach, might say to you, will you give me half an hour of that TV time to go into the kitchen, think about your food for the next day, get your cycling gear out, put it in your bag, get your work bag ready, get your shit together. And then two weeks later, tell me if that half an hour investment, change of investment time from watching TV to go and get your shit together, can we buy into that? But then we have to look at the output. So if you are feeling better about yourself, you've got more energy, you're losing weight, then that's kind of worth it. And what we're doing is we're just readjusting time. But most people use time as an excuse. But we have to have a readjustment of focus and we have to have a readjustment of priorities. And for most people, we're doing an hour or two of stuff a day we don't even want to do. So if we can say no to that stuff and start to pour time, energy, and focus into the things that are going to move the needle with our health, with our wealth, with our happiness, it's all there. Just pe- People just aren't seeing
0: it. That's why a coach works super well, because you have Mm. quite a certain outcome from input to output. When you're trying to navigate it on your own, like the path is difficult. There's a lot of friction along the way. And when you're making sacrifices, you see all this friction every day of the week, and then you're unsure if you're going to get a result on the far end. It's very difficult to keep overcoming that friction time and time again. But if you have, I don't want to say certainty you're working a coach, but if you have a degree of certainty that if I put this work in, I'm going to get this output, it gets much easier to build that into a feedback loop, which just rolls and rolls and rolls. 100%. And I think
1: there's a recent realization for me within coaching that I'd like to share because I think it's important. I believe a coach has to be quite far ahead of you in the journey to get the result that most people want and what I mean by that is if someone just looks a little bit fitter than me and they give me a load of fitness advice I'm going to be like "Mm," you know I don't really see it because you're only a little bit further along of me in the journey and the reason I say that is the ego is great at getting in the way because most humans believe their way is the right way so sometimes you have to have this big gap in difference of result for someone to actually sit up and listen. The problem with that is, is it's usually quite expensive. People don't want to pay the money to get that level of coaching, but it leads to an exponentially greater result. So if you're sitting watching, uh, listening to this podcast and think, yeah, I do want to make more results. And I would always recommend a coach. You are always going to progress more in life if you get guidance from experienced people with the goals that you want to achieve then please make that step. But it's probably an uncomfortable step. It's like career and business coaching as well. Like you'll probably not take the result. Like if I owned a million pound company and I was a, had a coach that, you know, was only earning 1.2 million pounds, like I probably feel that I'm actually quite close to that guy. And, you know, my techniques and my growth journey, my business plan, my strategies, about as good as his. If I had a business coach that was doing 10 million, all of a sudden I'm like, well, that guy's 10 times in theory better than me. I'm going to listen and you will make more progress. And actually having that gap, um, I think is really powerful, uh, in coaching to make you step up and actually realize your own potential. And most people listening to this have 10 X more potential than they're realizing, like hand on heart, believe that because everyone that I coach is only, you know, a fraction of their potential. And I believe that for myself as well.
0: I had a chance to chat with the Factor founder, Rob Chitellis on the podcast. It's worth going back to check out that episode. I was super impressed with him personally. Factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment, but they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage and resisting the urge to relocate production like so many competitors to lower-cost labor markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. And that's a nice little segue into the book because that is really a tool to help people try to unlock that potential. So I'm going to link it up in the show notes, but it's called How to Live an Awesome Life, the 11-Step Formula for Fulfillment and Success. Why only 11 steps? Were you not tempted to go with the old traditional 12-step crowbar something else in there?
1: I have had that mentioned, but I don't want to, I don't want to piss on their chips for a start. <laughs> um, also, if you spell out awesome life, that is 11 steps. And when I actually just started to map it, the 11 steps uh, fitted absolutely perfectly. Um, so for me with the book, like I've been in the health, fitness and nutrition game, largely in the world of nutrition for a long period of time. And when I looked at like what I actually do as a coach, I'm actually just coaching a greater level of happiness. People want to lose weight because they want to be happier. They want to get fit because they want to be happier. Like It all links back to happiness, fulfillment and a sense of success. So when I kind of stood back and was like, oh, what book should I write? It all came back to us just simply living an awesome life, which is what we all want. It's just all made up or needs to be made up in a different way for us, for our beliefs, our goals, our situation, our environment, etc. So hopefully the book enables people to figure that out for themselves.
0: So with the title, to sort of unpack the title a little bit, How to Live an Awesome Life. So the idea is that's something we should strive towards. So the awesome life being the goal. How does someone, as a starting point, figure out what an awesome life is because I think that's getting increasingly difficult for people to pinpoint and determine because you flick onto YouTube and there's, you know, bikini clads, van lifers doing one thing on Instagram. There's influencers looking ripped in Dubai and it's like, do I need to be all of these things? Do I need to be a a pro cyclist, a bodybuilder, an influencer? Is that what an awesome life looks like? What's the starting point for determining what awesome means for me?
1: Well, I think how you frame this question actually frames the initial starting point for the answer. So there's all of these external influences out there, what other people are doing. And I think one of the steps that you have to do is turn off all of that noise. So turn off social media for a period of time, start to remove a lot of the friction and frustrations in your life and start to listen to the clarity that opens up. So few people in life spend any meaningful amount of time in silence, by themselves, writing things down, exploring their thoughts, exploring their emotions, exploring their goals for their their life. Like if you were to stand at a bus stop, which not many of us do anymore, granted, the first thing you will do is you will flip open your phone and you'll scroll Facebook or Instagram, your chosen platform. And my point here is is there's always noise in our life. If you always have noise, you always have external input controlling how you feel about your life, the world, and the makeup of the world. Like social media can paint a picture of how the world is outside your village or town. But if we don't spend enough time looking at how we feel about how we want to turn up in the external world, then we're going to be forever unhappy. Um, And this is where I think writing down your goals exploring what friction is in your life, starting to listen to yourself and not the external point of view is so, so important. So I don't think there's an exact formula here, but I think there's steps people can go with to say, look, start doing that, block out the noise, start to listen, start to write things down. And I think the problem with personal development is, is some people out there and some books make it feel like this is quite an instant process. Like you just sit down, write down your goals and you're like inspired. Sometimes this stuff is messy and it takes months because you're so deep into the current makeup of your life and it feels so messy and it feels like there's so many strings attached that it takes a while to really clean out kind of like the weeds and start to see where the seeds of change actually are in your life.
0: It's a really valuable point around, you know, when someone goes to a bus stop or they're in a queue at a shop, the first thing they do is they pull out their phone. They're waiting in line at an ATM, pull out their phone, even see lads in nightclubs having a piss looking on their phone. It's like, there's not a moment of just sitting with your thoughts. And we don't have that many, we haven't inherited through, you know, Darwin, Origin of Species, and this idea of evolution of traits and recessive traits that aren't necessarily dying out in generations. Like, Boredom has sustained since the dawn of time for a reason. It's something, it's a cue that we should be listening to. You know, if you're picking fruit on a bush, you'll pick fruit, you'll pick the abundant fruit first, you'll fill your basket with them. If you stay in that same part of the bush, you're wrestling deeper and deeper into the bush, you're getting diminishing returns on your work here. Boredom kicks in, goes, I can't find any fruit. And that's your trigger to move on to a different part of the bush and start exploring. And using the bush as a metaphor there for the rest of our life, you know, if we're in a job, if we're in a relationship that's not quite right for us, but we're not taking those moments to listen to the boredom trigger and go, okay, should I actually be moving on? Should I be exploring opportunities elsewhere? Because at every free moment of introspection, it's like, boom, what's going on on Instagram?
1: I think, unfortunately, we haven't been taught some of these self-communication skills through either our parental upbringing, the school environment. Like if I thought back to school, like the thought of actually just almost listening to yourself and your emotions and stuff is absolutely like alien. Like when you're younger, people just talk about finding out what you want to do, getting a job, finding boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and and just working your way through life. But actually the issue with all of that is, is we now live in a world of ultimate abundance we can do anything and everything because of how connected the world is by technology, by travel. You know, um, there's, there's no such thing in some places as a defined culture anymore because it's such a melting pot of cultures, um, and societal diversity that that makes it even more confusing for people. But, you know, if I, myself, N equals one, Ben, I'm going to think about my life and where it's going. I just have to spend time with myself and ask myself where I want it to go and where I want to be. And the simple fact is not enough people are doing that. They're pacifying their thoughts and emotions through a constant connection to technology. And I'll outright say it's unhealthy.
0: Ben, you were talking about the starts that were quite similar in that you've read a lot of self-help books. So I'm sure the self-help books you've read broadly mimic my experience with them. There's some I've read and I thought that's unbelievable and I pull out a diary and I'm taking detailed notes and I'm highlighting and I'm revisiting this book time and time again. There's other that I read them and I think, yeah, that's pretty interesting. And then they go onto the bookshelf and they've gathered dust for the last six or seven years. So it's not really, if I zoom out and think about it, it's not the consumption of material that actually makes an impact. It's not, you know, people that attend a a college course most of them don't really come out any more enlightened than they went in. People that start a diet, they typically aren't any skinnier than when they start because they fall off the wagon. People that read a book aren't any smarter at the end of it. So it's not the consumption that actually matters, it's the action that matters. Hmm. Have you thought about that in the planning of your book? How does it become one of the ones that people actually use as a guide as opposed to something that collects dust? So what I did to
1: combat this, and I use myself as an example, because I have uh, ADHD, I'd say it's mild, and I'd say it increasingly becomes more milder as I learn how to channel my own energy, my own thoughts and be more present as a human. But what I found I used to do is I used to consume so much information that it just became a habit and an addiction. And you know, I might listen to a podcast and I'm like, oh, there's the next podcast, I'll listen to it. And I haven't yeah. actually spent any time, proper time with that last podcast and said, what did I learn? What do I want to go and change? How did that podcast make me feel? Because the chances are there's two or three moments in any long form conversation that makes you go, ah, that's a really good point. I should really think about how that will affect my life. So the best book that I've ever read and that's only because it stopped and made me take action, is How to Be Brilliant by Michael Happel. And it's a similar book to mine. And the reason why I liked it is it forced me to stop and said, how are you feeling right now? What do you want to change? And that stopping point, just that moment of two to three minutes, which happens a lot in my book, I ask you to get out a pen and write down, Right. Now, let's actually do what I've spoken about. Let's not just consume the information. Let's write down your goals. Let's write down how you're feeling. Let's write down the things that piss you off. Let's write down the people in your life that you feel are toxic. Let's write down the dream job that you want. Let's write up and say, these are my commitments to tomorrow of what I'm going to do to change my life for for the better. And that's why I think my book's different because it forces you to do that because we don't do that enough in our everyday lives.
0: One of the areas you talk about and it's uncomfortable conversations, and I we go as a society out of our way to you kind know, of navigate around any sort of discomfort, but maybe it's a function of just getting a little bit older and a little bit wiser as well. Any growth I have or anything positive that's happened in my life it's come after a period of discomfort, whether it's you know going through law school, it's a shit period you want to be out playing football with your friends on the street but you get out the far side of it, it's something worth having. The same, the work I put in to get professional contracts on the bike, you know, sure, I would have liked to have been going to friends, weddings, nights out, parties, barbecues, but that's not the reality of trying to be a professional athlete. But something positive comes out the far side, that's looking at a kind of at a macro level, but zooming in into this micro into individual conversations. What is the power of having those uncomfortable conversations and why should we be trying to kind of embrace them
1: well i think firstly uncomfortable conversations need to be had because there's uncomfort there so we know that there's friction so if you currently are frustrated at work you have to go and have an uncomfortable conversation so the simple reality of knowing an uncomfortable conversation needs to be had is you admitting to yourself that something is not right in your life that you want to change something and actually you are doing yourself a huge disservice by not going and having that uncomfortable conversation because you know that your relationship or your job or your friend that you've fallen out with or whatever that has to be dealt with for you to move forward and be happier and the more strength that we can have to have these conversations, the more potential of ourselves and the path ahead it opens up. The chances are, if you deal with what's in front of you right now, it all becomes easier because you should learn from that process. Like if you go into a job, you hate it, you've got to have an uncomfortable conversation to get out of it, you're more attuned to the warning signs of what is a bad job. So the chances are you might move into not that same situation again so I think for a lot of people it's our initial environment where you've not looked to change and there's so much built around you in your environment that becomes difficult because you you almost feel like you have to change a lot I've got to quit my job and do this and change that because you're now kind of starting from this more enlightened place but knowing that there's an uncomfortable conversation that has to happen is the sign that more happiness is on the other side of it.
0: But how do you keep these uncomfortable conversations, by virtue of their name, they're going to be uncomfortable? So how do you keep them respectful and constructive, especially if it's with an intimate partner? I can see with a boss, there's a element of formality which kind of maintains that respectfulness. But with an intimate partner, I guess that's more difficult.
1: Sure. So my initial technique for advising people is a technique called disarming. And what you basically do is you sit down with the other person and you be fully vulnerable and admit to them and yourselves how uncomfortable this is. Because otherwise, when you aim to have an uncomfortable conversation, most people's approach is to be combative. You've got to try and prove a point or prove that they're in the wrong or blame something or someone. Now, if you sit down and go, let's just say you're talking to your boss, like, hey, Jeff. I really need to talk to you about my job. Before I talk to you about it, I want you to know that this is a really uncomfortable conversation for me. I actually feel really nervous. Like I'm shaking. Like this is really uncomfortable for me. So will you just give me the space to talk? And straight away, most humans would just see the compassion that they now need to bring to that conversation. And Jeff will be sitting there thinking, Oh my God, like, Oh God, they're being really vulnerable with me here. Like I'm going to almost take care of that vulnerability. And then you've created the space. You're allowed to talk. You've been honest about how you feel and you've disarmed the conversation from being combative straight from the starting point. Cause if you enter into a conversation with the guys to be combative it's just going to get heated blow up someone's gonna get hurt usually both people get hurt so I am a big fan of disarming
0: you wouldn't use the good news sandwich you wouldn't be like jeff I really like your shoes but you're an absolute brutal boss
1: no because it's it's ungenuine and do you know what the people that say this to me and you know I've had past employees for example you know I've given them some you know direct feedback and they're like oh couldn't you have can you have given me a shit sandwich? And I'm like, that wouldn't have been being honest. That would have been me being dishonest. Like, why can't people sit down and have a conversation about a singular thing that is difficult? And the chances are that person will walk away and know that you dressed the conversation up anyway. So, again, I think it's kind of an integrity thing for people to come at a conversation for what needs to be said and what needs to happen.
0: What have you learned over the course of your podcasts and your career? That would have been the twelfth step. That was the one that was, you know, the first on the chopping block that you're borderline wanted to include it in the book, but for some reason you chose not to.
1: I think it's getting us getting in touch with this more spiritual and esoteric kind of side of ourselves. Um, I know that this book would not land if I tried to talk about that, but what I'm really trying to get people to discover is a true sense of themselves and that's a real hard sell because it's it's layered up in so many different things but if we break it down and optimize people and get people sleeping better moving better thinking better eating better etc they'll start to move way closer towards the best version of themselves anyway and then hopefully they start to go in on a journey where they're actually really connected to themselves their relationships their environment what they want so ultimately i'm trying to take a, people on a journey, journey of the ultimate level of self-discovery
0: what's the best place for someone to go and pick up a copy amazon or audible
1: how to live an awesome life is there uh, it's like 11.99 so it's not a lot of money but i think it would return massive massive value for anyone that read it
0: boom ben thank you very much for joining me on the Roadman podcast thank you sir